Energy poverty impacts one in five people. For children, this means they don't have access to lights to read or study by after dark, limiting their opportunities. Solar Buddy is here to change that, and they're doing it with the gift of light. Solar Buddy's innovative corporate program is inspiring, fun, and educational. Through it, you'll learn about energy poverty, renewable energy, assemble your very own solar light, and pen a handwritten note. The lights and letters are then gifted to children living in energy poverty. I recently distributed Solar Buddy lights in PNG and witnessed firsthand the difference a solar light can make. Visit solarbuddy.org and join the growing community of light givers. The future is brighter with Solar Buddy. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 45 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, I'm interviewing Alan Gingell. Alan was appointed the National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs in September 2017, having previously been named a Fellow of the AIIA in 2010. Alan is an Honorary Professor with the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific and was most recently Director of the ANU Crawford Leadership Forum. Alan has had an extensive career in Australian international affairs. He was the Director General of the Australian Office of National Assessments from 2009 to 2013. Prior to leading the ONA, he was the founding executive director of the Lowy Institute for International Policy from 2003 to 2009. Additionally, Alan has worked at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, serving as an Australian diplomat in Myanmar, Singapore and Washington. He was senior advisor to Prime Minister Paul Keating between 1993 and 1996. Alan has been appointed as an officer in the Order of Australia in 2009 for services to international relations. Alan, thank you so much for being on the show. Great pleasure to be with you, Rachel. Okay, so as I said to you before we started, I think a lot of our listeners are already familiar with the AIIA, uh, but it would be great if you could start by explaining what the organisation does and what your role as national president involves. Yeah, well, look, um, the AIIA is a a very old organisation now. In fact, its origins go back exactly 100 years uh, uh, this year. Uh, It emerged out of the debates and discussions that were taking place in the uh, Paris Peace Conference in 1919 at the end of the First World War. And a number of the uh, American and allied delegates, including some Australians, were sitting around saying to themselves, how can we prevent this uh, horror uh, happening again? Um, And they came to the conclusion that one way of ensuring that there was no uh, repeat, um, was uh, to involve the publics of our countries more actively in the debate about uh, foreign policy. 
They didn't succeed, of course, because there was another uh, war um, only uh, only a couple of decades uh, later. But out of that sort of discussion and ferment, you got organisations like the Council on Foreign Relations in New York and uh, Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs in uh, in the uh, in the UK and the Australian Institute of International Affairs here. Now the AAA is a community group, so it's not a think tank in the way that the Lowy Institute was. Um, its its job is to engage Austra- ordinary Australians uh, right across the country, and we've got branches in every state in talking about, understanding, debating uh, the great issues outside Australia that uh, that affect us all. One of the reasons I was really happy to take on this job was that when I was a um, sort of 16-year-old high school student uh, in uh, in Melbourne, I had a history teacher who was a member of the Institute, saw that I was interested in, uh, in the uh, wider world and used to send me off to meetings with uh, a note to the secretary asking if I could sit in the back uh, in the back row. So it was my first uh, exposure to grown-up discussions about uh, about the world and I suppose it led me then to go on and study this at uh, international relations at university and to join DFAT and um, and the rest has followed. So it was really nice to be able to uh, um, rejoin uh, the Institute um, and uh, try and give something back to it at the uh, end of my career as well as the beginning. It's amazing how high school teachers can have such an impact on shaping oh, our careers. Oh, can't they? Oh, no, no. If, uh, you know, if, if we're lucky, we have uh, great teachers who really shape our lives and, uh, and I was certainly lucky in that way. So before we, we move on to the the book that you've written, which I'm really keen to talk about. You also mentioned the Lowy Institute there, and obviously you played a pivotal role um, in setting up the Lowy Institute, which I think is an outstanding organisation like AAA. Can you talk about that era and and what you envisaged the mandate of an organisation like Lowy to be? Yeah. <clears throat> well, it, it sort of came out of the blue. I was, uh, I was invited to, I'd left government and was sort of hanging around in Sydney doing various things, um, consultancies and so on. And I was asked to go and have a cup of coffee with Frank Lowy, who I'd never met before. And um, Frank was trying to find some way to mark the 50th anniversary of his arrival in Australia as a uh, as a penniless refugee, the classic uh, the classic story, and he wanted to give something back to the uh, to the country, and uh, had this idea that he would um, um, fund a an institute that would look at <clears throat> both what Australia was doing in the world um, and uh, and how the world impacted on us. Uh, so we had a cup of coffee, and it turned out to be a job interview. And there are very few times in your life when someone comes along with a pile of money and says, go and do everything you've always wanted to do. So I pretended immediately that I knew what a, you know, foreign policy think tank would be about. And I said, sure, sure, Frank, I can do this um, with a, uh, a an outward confidence, which <laughs> certainly disguised <laughs> an inner thinking, oh, gee, what, do I go- <laughs> what have I done? Um but uh, I had spent an awful long time by by then thinking about what Australia needed 
uh, in the world. And one of the things we did not have at that point was a um, uh, was a culture of think tanks which do applied research in public policy in the way that I'd been very familiar with when I uh, when I was posted in Washington with the uh, with the the um, Australian embassy so uh, so I knew there was something to do and uh, and so I sort of got out a piece of paper and a pencil and um, and drew up a structure and started uh, talking to people who knew more about it than I did including Overseas think tanks and um, and uh, and recruiting people. So it was a fantastically uh, sort of enriching and energising uh, experience. And um, and working with uh, Frank Lowy uh, was equally so. I mean, uh, I'd uh, worked with very powerful people uh, um, before, but never with someone with who was an entrepreneur in the way that uh, Frank was. So. I learned, or, or still is, I, so I learned an awful lot from working with him. Wow, I can only imagine how that coffee must have felt <laughs> with Frank. <laughs> what a feeling. I think I think the, a common thread between AIIA and Lowy is that they make seemingly complex foreign policy discussions really accessible to a mainstream audience. And I think that's a really, really significant contribution to be making to a democratic society that you know, Lowy Institute, you can go along and hear the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea speak and similarly AIIA producing really accessible, really brilliant thought leadership for for mainstream society. Was that notion of accessibility and, and inclusivity in the foreign policy debate a consideration in those early days? Oh, very, very much so. I mean, I, <clears throat> I really um, believe that the, um, the in the informed contribution of uh, of the Australian public to the debate about our place in the world is absolutely that not everyone is going to um, be remotely interested in you know all the details of the you know political situation in Venezuela. Uh, or, uh, or or or, or uh, to sort of understand fully, even you know, even the sort of politics of uh, a place we know well, but like um, uh, the United the United Kingdom, all the sort of ins and outs of the Brexit uh, debate. <clears throat> but um, but making sure that you are talking to people about these issues in ways that make them relevant to the actual. Uh, um, things that Australia uh, needs to uh, to do in the world is really is really critical. I think a um, a distanced public, uh, a public disengaged and uninterested in the world, I think is very uh, 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 dangerous and damaging for any country. Yeah, absolutely agree. And we'll come back to the way foreign policy is treated in government dialogue shortly. First, I want to talk about your book. And as someone who absolutely loves history, I'm really excited to hear your insights. So you have written a book called Fear of Abandonment, Australia in the World Since 1942, which is an account of the way Australians and their governments have helped create the world that we now inhabit. So let's start there. I'm I'm cognizant that I don't want to ask you to summarize an entire book in a in a podcast interview, but can you comment on 
the way Australians have shaped world order since 1942? Yeah, well, look, maybe maybe a place to start is 1942 because uh, in many ways Australia is um, a very old uh, country. I hate that line from the national anthem, uh, you know, we're young and and free. We're not. We're extremely old in almost every way you can think of from the first Australians who've been here for 70,000 years to the geology of the uh, country. We're an old democracy uh, by any uh, uh, measure. So we've, we've been... Uh, we have been doing lots of things for a long time, but in foreign policy, we are genuinely new. Until we ratified a, a, um, a British legislation called the Statute of Westminster in 1942, we simply didn't have an independent identity of our own in the world. We we saw the world and operated in the world uh, through the structures of the British Empire. We didn't have our own uh, embassies overseas, we uh, didn't have anything that you would call a, a foreign policy. So it's quite new. Um, after the uh, after the Second World War, we were f- suddenly faced with a an international environment unlike anything that we'd ever encountered before. The um, uh, the European colonial powers, which had um, controlled most of the countries around us in Asia uh, were um, being uh, challenged by independence movements in the uh, in the area. Uh, a new global order was being set up in the United Nations and the uh, and the Bretton uh, Woods institutions and um, and we had to make our way um, in this. I'm just at the moment actually reading a um, uh, a book, um, a new book that's just come out by uh, Julia Suarez um, uh, uh, about um, Ben Chifley and his approach to the world. And it's a reminder that during that period, Australian governments did have to make some really important uh, decisions like would we support the new independence movements in Indonesia or would we support the Dutch who wanted to go back and resume colonial power, and we chose uh, we chose the Ind- Indonesians. Similarly, um, through the um, foreign minister at the time, uh, Doc Evatt, Australia played a really quite uh, important role in the uh, establishment of the new United Nations organisation and and all the various. Um, institutions uh, attached to it. <clears throat> so that was our baptism of fire in uh, in foreign policy. And the, um, the 70 years uh, since then have um, seen a mixture of important contributions um, by Australia and some, uh, some, let me say, um, you know, reasonably fallow periods when we haven't, haven't seemed to do very much at all uh, in the world. But now... Uh, this these this moment we've reached now, I think, is as profoundly challenging for us as that period between 1945 and 1949 was. What makes this such a challenging moment? Look, at the centre of it all is the fact that the two countries of, that matter most to us, um, the United States for our security 
and China for our um, uh, for our uh, economy have uh, have become non-status quo powers. Both of them think that the um, <clears throat> the world should uh, should change, and um, and uh, through you know Donald Trump and America first, and through the more assertive Chinese policies of uh, of Xi Jinping, Australia is finding that the years when our leaders used to regularly intone, we don't have to choo choose between our security and our prosperity. Um, are, uh, are behind us and we are suddenly having to make some quite difficult choices. I find that a really fascinating connection that the challenges that we faced in shaping world order in 1942 we're facing again now. That, that makes this a very profound moment in history and I'm not sure that we feel the weight of that in society. Uh, we, we possibly don't uh, and, um, you know, 19... Um, well, I wouldn't say 1942 because we were still at war then, but, you know, after the war, 45 to uh, um, to 49, there's the same sense that we don't know where the future will lead us. For most of the period between, you know, the early 1950s and, um, say, the end of the first decade of the century, um, life was pretty easy for Australia. I mean, when Britain decided that, uh, ironically, it needed to join Europe and join the EEC, and so our markets in Britain were cut off in the, 19, in the 1960s, suddenly Japan and Korea and China opened up to us. So we knew where we had to go. Uh, when Britain, you know, withdrew its um, military forces east of Suez, the United States was standing ready uh, as a security guarantor. So we could genuinely say to one another that we supported the rules-based order because the rules-based order was one that we and our mates had uh, had established. So, you know, it was, it was uh, pretty straightforward. Now, by no means straightforward. Um, I don't think it's at all clear which way the world is going to evolve, whether we're going to see a new Cold War between um, the United States and uh, China or whether we're going to sort of uh, the world is going to divide into sort of mutual walled gardens, economic walled gardens where neither uh, with, you know, much less uh, uh, um, interaction between us than there was. I, I simply I simply don't know. And, of course, <clears throat> underlying all that, you've got the um, even more fundamental problems in the Earth's uh, biosphere with climate change and oceans, which in the end will have far more impact on our future uh, the lives of future generations of Australians than anything that Donald Trump or Xi Jinping might do. At, at the outset of your answer there, you talked about how Australia did play a really pivotal role in creating the United mm. Nations. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's an interesting area, as well as our participation in other regional groupings like ASEAN, um, to a lesser extent, the Pacific Islands, forum and, and and that community of pacific island nations what sort of participant are we in these in these 
groupings, whether it be regional or the United Nations? Um, I called the uh, <clears throat> I called my book "Fear of Abandonment" um, uh, because you know, dating right back to the earliest European settlement in Australia, there there there's always been this slight um, nagging feeling in the back of our minds that way down here on this vast continent in the far you know reaches of the southern ocean we might be forgotten about so we that has i think given us a very uh, quite activist uh, approach to dealing with the world <clears throat> and it's it's very hard to think of an international organization that australia doesn't want to be a member of where you know someone says they're starting some new organization the you know the canberra instinct is always should should we be should we be in it so we have been a very uh, active and on the whole you know taken over the over you know all the decades you know a pretty uh, a pretty reliable uh, contributor to uh, to international organizations and to multilateral diplomacy generally you know the things we've done uh, through the um, through the UN in uh, you know locally with um, with ASEAN we were the first external dialogue partner uh, for ASEAN we've been involved in the um, in the uh, South Pacific uh, right through from the uh, from the earliest uh, periods when the uh, when the uh, uh, Pacific uh, island countries began to uh, to um, enter into independence. Yeah, and that's good. It's good that you've touched on the Pacific there, because a the question that I was thinking as you were speaking was, how important is our relationship to the Pacific Islands relative to our relationship with, say, China or the USA? Like, geopolitically, how important is it that we get that relationship into a good place? For a very long time, <clears throat> Australia has thought of the Pacific as being sort of our patch in the words that uh, John Howard used. I came across a, um, a quotation by the Australian Prime Minister just a couple of weeks ago and it said, uh, uh, Australia adheres to the doctrine hands off the Pacific. Uh, the Prime Minister, though, was Billy Hughes back in 1919, not uh, Scott Morrison in, uh, in 2019. So the idea that the Pacific is a particular part of the world um, uh, for us goes back a very long way uh, in our history. Of course, um, you know, in geopolitical and geoeconomic terms, it's not as important uh, to us as uh, as China. These are small and um, uh, and in some cases uh, quite uh, fragile states for reasons that you know um, very well. Um, but uh, I think it's hard for us to think about ourselves as a responsible actor in the world if uh, we are not taking the Pacific seriously and being taken seriously uh, by the Pacific. So, uh, so for me, um, you know, it's uh, it's a um, uh, an um, uh, irreducible uh, element 
in Australian uh, policy and our engagement with the world. We we tend to go through cycles when we're thinking about the Pacific. We're going through, a, you know, the Pacific step up is a is a, an engagement cycle uh, at the moment. Sometimes uh, we go in there and think we've got to. This is uh, there. You know, there are real problems here. We've got to roll up our sleeves and get in there and sort them out. And then at other times we think to ourselves, no, that's not working. The only thing we can do is to stand back and let the people uh, and the governments of the Pacific themselves work out what they need. So the, so this uh, cycle in, uh, in Australian engagement with the region uh, uh, does tend to sort of perpetuate itself uh, through time. Yes, definitely. And I, and I think that cyclical approach to engagement in the region might mirror um, the somewhat cyclical approach we've had to foreign aid. I, th- I think yeah. the point I would make there is often uh, I see us getting foreign policy confused with foreign aid, whereby foreign aid is actually just a, quite a small part of foreign policy when, you know, when we also consider things like aid for trade agendas and um, and more commercial, you know, trading arrangements in other countries, etc. There's Our foreign policy is a very multifaceted thing, mm. but our aid narrative um, seems to feature most prominently in, um, in some of the foreign policy discussions that we have. Um, would you agree with that? And, and where do you see that aid narrative fitting into the broader foreign policy picture? Uh, look, I think, uh, I mean, aid is obviously, <clears throat> development assistance uh, is obviously one of the instruments uh, that that we use to advance uh, to advance our uh, our foreign policy interests, as well as to, you know, serve other purposes like, uh, you know, humanitarian uh, um, relief. Um, look, my own, I'm not an aid. Um, expert, um, you know, my own view is that we need to deconstruct the idea of aid. That speaking about aid as one thing um, probably clouds the thinking that we're able to uh, to do about it. Now, I'm not quite sure what the uh, what you know what what the proper deconstruction of it would um, <clears throat> would leave you with. But certainly the things we're trying to do with aid in, you know, disaster relief in Africa are very different from the things we're trying to do in working with, um, say, um, uh, Vietnam or, or, um, or uh, Myanmar uh, in um, in helping to sort of uh, strengthen governance structures, they're different in turn from the, from the way in which we uh, we interact with um, the Pacific, and even in, even in the Pacific, sort of aid to to PNG is very different from what the needs of somewhere like um, uh, Tuvalu or or, uh, or Kiribati. So. So you know, you know, of course, in one way, there's a you know, there's a bucket of money, a declining, <laughs> a diminishing bucket of money, uh, called the uh, the aid uh, budget. But we probably need to think about it in different ways. 
I think that's a really good point. And I, and I think the language that we use around aid um, actually doesn't serve our cause very well when we restrict the discussion to what is the aid budget as opposed to the bigger picture questions of why do we give aid um, and how do we give aid better? So who's responsible for changing that narrative? Is that, is that onus on the not-for-profit sector? Is it on government or is it on think tanks um, like Lowy and and organisations like AIIA? Uh, the answer to almost all of life's questions is all of the above, and um, <laughs> that's uh, <clears throat> that's another one. Yeah, I think I think all those uh, all those uh, stakeholders in the uh, in the foreign policy business have a uh, have a role, and I don't think governments will act <clears throat> until um, they're persuaded by think tanks and by uh, you know particularly the uh, the uh, sector. Um, that they need to think about things in different uh, different ways. So, if you want change, I think the change will have to be driven from uh, from outside government uh, rather than from inside. In 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 the sense of these ways of thinking about what we're trying to do. So I think to that point, all of the above, that all of these different stakeholders have a responsibility for shaping the discussion. That's. To, to the discussion that we had earlier, foreign policy should feature more prominently in our public discussions. Um, why why do you think that foreign policy should feature more prominently and how would we go about achieving that? Well, it's very different. It's very difficult rather to think about a single thing <clears throat> that Australia or Australians want to achieve in the world. Oh, sorry, not not want to achieve in the world. It's very difficult to think of a thing that Australians want to achieve for themselves from, you know, um, uh, health, uh, education, the strength of our economy, uh, the security of our people, uh, the cohesiveness of our society which which don't involve the outside world. I mean, you you just you know, impossible. Think try try to think of something. You know, sport, for example. I mean, you know, l- look at any Australian sporting uh, team, particularly um, uh, you know rugby league, where I come from in in uh, in Canberra, and uh, and uh, and you know, think to yourself that. You know, there's not an international dimension here. Of course, there is. Um, there's um, so um, if, like me, you believe that everything we want to do depends on our understanding the world and acting effectively in it, then finding ways of drawing the Australian public into the uh, into the debate. Uh, in an informed way is really uh, is really very very important. How what argument do you make though to to demonstrate that importance? I mean, say to a person that's that's not directly involved <clears throat> in, say, the not for profit sector or international development or international affairs. What is the relevance to them of a foreign policy debate? The the relevant. I'm just. I'll just go back to what I said before. Really, you say to that person. Um, if you want to have the sort of life that you plan 
for your uh, for your family. It depends on an Australia with an economy which is growing. And if you're in a country Australia's size, that is always going to mean engagement with the uh, with the um, with the outside uh, world. If you want a um, um, uh, to live in 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 a world in which um, uh, the environment is not being uh, either you know heated or polluted, uh, this is nothing that Australia can do by itself. We we're um, we're engaged with the world, uh, whether we think about it uh, or 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 not. Um, you know, m- much of the time it's not going to impinge on the um, on the daily lives of uh, of people, <clears throat> but the underlying structure of their lives very much depends on it. Yeah, really well said. Okay, so to close, uh, a question that I ask some of our guests, um, and I and I think you'll have a very interesting answer to it is. What does success look like in 10 years? And I guess I'm asking that through the lens of foreign policy for Australia. If we could paint a picture of Australia's place in the world in 2029, what does success look like? Well, above all, success looks um, <clears throat> looks peaceful, you know. Um, you, know de- you know, going back to those discussions in Paris in 1919, um, you know, we, we forget about um, the dangers of war and we forget about the efforts we have to put into uh, to, uh, maintaining peace and that's what, you know, foreign policy and diplomacy uh, is about in some very important uh uh, respect. So, you know, we need to keep our region uh, and Australia as stable and peaceful uh, as we can. We um, success will be the absence of a you know sharp downturn in the global economy because we've forgotten the lessons of the 1930s and uh, and um, and uh, have started turning inwards. Uh, again, uh, on, um, uh, uh, to each other, thinking that we can resolve these uh, these deep uh, questions within national borders, uh, we can't. And it will certainly mean a world which is taking more seriously those uh, deep underlying changes that I talked about before in the in the Earth's uh, biosphere with climate change and uh, and oceans and so on. Um, you know, 10 years uh, is, you know, it doesn't sound uh, very long, but there are some really critical decisions to be made by Australia 
and by the uh, other members of the international community in that period. Yeah, again, really well put. It would be remiss of me not to mention before we close that you also have your own podcast. So for our guests that are looking to um, to hear more of your insights, how can they access that? Uh, yeah, well, um, with uh, Darren Lim, who's a, uh, who's a, a colleague from uh, the uh, School of Politics and International Relations, at the ANU, we have a regular podcast called Australia in the World, and our focus there is foreign policy in the way that yours is on the sort of not-for-profit not, not um, uh, sector. So, yeah, visitors, visitors uh, listeners, very welcome uh, there too. Wonderful. And I, and I can attest it is a fantastic podcast and such a valuable contribution to foreign policy discussions in Australia. Thank you so much for being on the show, Alan. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. 